Welcome back to Show Me the Money. Right now, we're going to talk about what happens when you're actually ready to produce your movie or TV show, and how do you get it to as many eyeballs as possible and get your vision to the world. So, Sam, we're going to start off talking about the pre-production mm -hmm. process, right? Well, there are different phases of production, and uh, the, now that you've got your money and you actually are greenlit, you have to start actually producing it. So this is where... I hesitate to say where the real work begins because yeah, there's yeah. been a ton of work already, in many cases, years and years of work. <laughs> uh, but this is really where the legwork begins well, and you actually start filming, bringing your vision to the universe. You're, you're, you're manufacturing a film and you're actually doing the film and that whole process requires that you're bringing together maybe sometimes hundreds of people. And if you're... There's extras involved or whatever it is. There's thousands or whatever. Or these days, extras can be, you know, CGI'd in or whatever. But there are definitely the, the coordination of an entire team of people that have to work like clockwork. Why don't we and it all our, starts yeah. with really that first step, which is now we've financed, they've closed. Our role is a little different at this point as lawyers. And they have to... They've probably decided where they were coming, hopefully to Canada, right, to do the, the production and maybe which province. But where are, the, are you shooting this film? So it's the settings, right? That's the pre-production component that you can do a film on location or you can do a film in a studio. And obviously the old films were almost all done in studios and they would build sets, you know, and even outdoor sets in, in Los Angeles. But uh, over here in Canada, what we're often looking at is location shooting, where the cities themselves become the location, become the, the, the sets and so forth. So, And location is also important in terms of even part of your financing. Um, if you shoot in the city of Montreal or Toronto or Vancouver, your tax credit is your basic tax credit. If you decide to take your location outside of the regional areas of these cities, then you get what are called regional bonuses. They're trying to promote economic activity and film activity outside of those cities because cities are the ones where most people happen. So you'd actually get sometimes 10% more of a tax credit because you went, you know, 30 miles or 40, 35 kilometers outside of the city and then you, uh, your tax credit. So that's a consideration. It's a financial consideration, apart, obviously, from the fact that if you're outside city centers, does the location work? Is your film actually set in a country setting? Is it set, you know, in an area that could be outside? Now, there are towns and so forth that would be, uh, you know, uh, set that way. Uh, what was the, the film? Three billboards uh, outside uh, one of those towns in the United States. There was a movie that was recently an Academy Award uh, uh, winning movie. So that movie probably had easily been set outside of the city centers. Um, the other place is studios. Uh, studios themselves give you a controlled environment. And just, just to back up, when you're talking about shooting on location, you have outside of city center, but what happens when you go really far away from the city, mm -hmm. right? Ontario has that Northern Fund. I mm -hmm. think we, we were at one ta yeah. time talking about uh, the capital region credit mm -hmm. 
in Canada. Mm -hmm. And then there's apparently a state capital region incentive in the state of New York. Yes. Yeah. If you're shooting in and around Albany. I think it's north of Albany or Albany and north, which is, you know, the, I guess, northern New York. <laughs> so you'd end up getting a special credit, an additional amount of money from New York State if you actually did your film in Albany and up. And right. So forth. So, and the other thing is you mentioned the amount of control that you have over each one of the locations that you're setting. And obviously if you're in a studio, it's a, it's more of a controlled environment. If you're on location, you're subject to the whims of the universe, right? Mm -hmm. You're actually going out onto a city street. Mm -hmm. You have PAs who are making sure that pedestrians don't walk through your set. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's that obstacle, which is just a practical obstacle. The other thing that we do as lawyers, though, and that we're called on to do, it's to get the appropriate paperwork, mm -hmm. right? So we've been called upon to draft location releases, which is a one-page document, mm -hmm. which says, hi, producer, you have the right to use this location. And FYI, we as the owner of that location have certain rights in into the location, mm -hmm. right? And also sometimes storefront releases, especially if there is a distinctive sign. You're yeah, shooting in front of a store. Any type of appearance, those things all need to be cleared and so forth. Another element is also permitting. Uh, the city itself will, you'd have to get a permit to shoot. And the city of Montreal or ma many, many cities are made up of boroughs, right? Or <laughs> different cities within a city. Uh, for instance, in Montreal, recently, uh, they wanted to shoot in a, in, a, in a town that had its own permitting law uh, or permitting control, and they weren't able to get it, and they thought that that was all part of Montreal. Um, so sometimes you get a surprise that, in reality, Montreal is composed of various elements which have different ways of viewing uh, filming. Uh, including getting neighbors who can complain of having films being made in their area and, and could potentially stop the film. Don't forget, you're, you're looking at maybe running 200,000 or hundreds of thousands of dollars a day for your film. If you have a delay in one day, all of a sudden that can cause you to go over budget and, 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 and maybe you're even your actor may not be available because they're only available for a certain period of time. It's really, really critical to get that aspect all pre-done, pre-cleared. So that pre-production, hopefully, sets you all up for finally going into what we call principal photography, which would be the next step. Exactly. So you have your setting, studio yeah. or on location, yeah. or maybe a mix of both. Have you ever seen that? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. I mean, there's green screen, right, is often done in studio. Right, so they uh, they huge you know huge huge green screens are at uh, the backdrop, and then that's done in a, in a, in an area, and often the best place is a studio. Right, exactly. And you mentioned before that well, more on location in Canada, but what mm -hmm. I've been hearing anecdotally is that studio space is completely booked in Canada, especially in Vancouver mm -hmm. around 2017, 2018. Mm. Apparently, you just couldn't find a studio there. There was so much. There, there was such a limitation on the space. Here we have, what studios do we have here? We have Mel's. Mel's is really the only one. Uh, there's one on the east uh, side as a secondary studio, but there's really only one that has those major sound stages. Right. And, and, and that's another aspect of it. Obviously, we, you've made your decision where you're going uh, because of either a tax credit or for a specific reason. 
the availability of studio space is something really, really important. Uh, and if there's a major blockbuster film that's coming in, uh, that blockbuster film will end up taking a, a, a big chunk of the time of that studio. Right. Yeah. So now we're launching into actual principle, mm -hmm. or sometimes you'll see PP, right? Yeah, right. Um, so at this point, obviously, as the producer and as the creatives on set, you're there making movie magic. Mm -hmm. But the one thing that we often see that's very important is, as you mentioned before, you have hundreds of people who are contributing to this film. Mm -hmm. As lawyers, one of the things that we are extremely careful and cognizant of is making sure that you have a grant of rights mm -hmm. from each contributor, mm -hmm. whether it be an actor, a writer, a director, uh, a below-the-line personnel, mm -hmm. uh, that they grant their rights in and to the film to you as producer. Uh, you mentioned before also uh, stopping production, right? In these documents, one of the things that's incredibly important to have is that waiver of injunctive relief. Mm -hmm. So in every agreement that we get, we make sure that there is a clause which says something to the effect of, if for whatever reason we have a difference between us, we'll only pursue a claim for monetary damage, it, monetary damages. We won't try to stop the film from being distributed. Mm -hmm. We won't seek injunctive relief. And that's a very, very important mm -hmm. clause. The other thing which we put in there, as I alluded to before, is the grant of rights, right? And I mean, do you want to talk a little bit about work for hire, work made in the course of employment, how right. that works? I think there's, an, well, there's three categories if you look at it, right? Most of the people that will be in the film will be governed by a collective bargaining agreement, right? So your actors, the day players, they call them, that in Canada has ACTRA, the United States have SAG. In fact, in the world, you have SAG, That's right? True. Because anyone who's a member of Screen Actors Guild, SAG, um, will end up forcing everybody who's using them, no matter where they are, to ad ad adhere to the SAG collective bargaining agreement. And that's called Global Rule 1. Glo yeah. If anyone hears Global Rule 1 ever mentioned, that's what we're talking yeah. about here. So here you have a, 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 the, the SAG is able to do that only because the SAG member tends to be one of the most important actor in the film or actor you know the key cast and otherwise legally from a labor law standpoint they are not recognized as the union for the world for all actors SAG basically is jurisdictions in the United States and so forth where it legally has its rights but it is able to enforce that because you want that actor that actor says hey if you want to me to act in your picture, okay, or your film, I want you to adhere to this thing. So that's, so that component becomes then all of a sudden governing your relationship. But most of the time, that actor also has other terms and conditions, right? The, 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 the key creative a contract itself has a series of other elements that go into it, um, apart from just what they're being paid, okay? It's also a contingent compensation, a percentage of what the profits are, a percentage potentially of box office. And some people call it a gross or an adjusted gross. 
right, on the box office. So, uh, and then there's also the rights that are the, the uh, clauses that come to it and the perks. I mean, I've dealt with contracts of actors who are non-smokers who will say that they don't want anybody to smoke within a certain distance around them. There's that's always mm-hmm. there's always some really interesting perks yeah. and travel provision yeah. requirements, right? And Obviously, their hair and makeup person will be required to be on set. That only one person that they trust. But yeah. you'd have to fly them all over the place. Yeah. And I think there's two ways <laughs> to look at the, basically what Sam is talking about is there's clauses in performer agreements, especially that provide for travel hotel, accommodations, per diems, but all sorts of other things, right? Mm-hmm. Like hair, makeup, and wardrobe. Mm-hmm. They're going to bring their their hairstylist or makeup artist mm-hmm. along. And there's two ways to look at that, right? One, from the producer side, sometimes they're small items, like mm-hmm. a per diem of $65 mm-hmm. per day. I think most producers are able to swallow that cost. But mm-hmm. a lot of the things mm-hmm. add up, right? The difference between... Uh, first-class hotel accommodations and a four-star mm-hmm. could be very different. The difference between first-class and an Airbnb could be very different. Coach versus mm-hmm. first-class airlines. These things add up really, uh, really quickly. Especially and the, when and you the other one is that there's something called a favored nations clause. Exactly. Yeah. So let's, let's say you've got three main actors in your, in your film and one of them, you obviously want to accommodate and whatever perk he or she may want, you're ready to give, right? Okay. But the, all of a sudden, if you give in to all of those for the main actor or so forth, and the others want favored nations, it means that they have to get the same perks, which now you've multiplied all you know, by three or four or whatever the number is of your of your key cast. And it makes it also almost sometimes impossible because you can't necessarily give one top and each one has a top or something. So we've had issues where um, that favored nations clause has created major problems. Exactly. And as a producer, you need to be yeah. extremely cognizant of it. I do think that there is a flip side, though. And if you mm-hmm. speak to talent reps, mm-hmm. whether attorneys in L.A. or agents... Uh, they'll say something which I I also empathize with uh, as well, mm-hmm. which is, you know, if you're an actor or a director or any kind of personnel contributing to a film, especially when you're shooting far away from home, mm-hmm. and I'm not talking about you're shooting in uh, in the San Fernando Valley and you mm-hmm. live on the west side of LA. I'm talking about across the continent mm-hmm. in Europe. You're away from your family. You know, these things do matter to these people, right? And they are far away from home, far away from their family. So for they do want to make sure of time, yeah. for for sometimes yeah. months, right? Yeah. So they do want to make sure that they're comfortable, so they mm-hmm. could bring their A game. And I think it's important also that we remain cognizant of that. There is kind of the balance. Uh, so that's really kind of your rights holder or contributor mm-hmm. agreements. Why don't we talk a bit about labs now? Yeah. And where the labs come into play. Okay, well, again, apart from uh, those guys, there's the, 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 you have the actors, okay? Then you've got the technicians, okay? And each of the technicians also has a, a collective bargaining agreement. So you're governed by a lot of these collective bargaining agreements. But you were indicating that apart from those, okay, 
anyone else. Like you called about location releases and so forth. Every single element that goes into the film then has those contracts. Yeah, and you know what? Before we jump ahead to labs, you're talking about union. This is one thing to mention. You can shoot a non-union film, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily going to have the same... It's hard. Yeah. 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 Well, it's hard because the the, the moment that you the, the the jurisdiction of the union is triggered by anybody who you hire that is in a union. So probably the best people that you want to be in a film will be unionized. They could decide that for them to work, they need to have their union contract. The moment they are you you hire one person union, it's very hard to be non-union. But if I'm let's say I'm straight out of film school yeah. in Montreal, right? Mm-hmm. And I want to produce a short. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily have to go union, right? No, I could find no, an actor. My, many jurisdictions are what they call open jurisdictions or something. They're not closed or whatever. Yeah, there are certain. Apparently, I'm not as familiar with the U.S. side of it, but there are many places which are closed that you have to be union. But I think what yeah. you're getting at is if you want a certain level of established talent, right? Yeah. People who have mm-hmm. track records, whether an actor or whether a writer, mm-hmm. very hard to go non-union. Yeah. If you want to shoot something scrappier and and like this is going to be your short mm-hmm. that's entered into the Cannes Film Festival or Telluride, mm-hmm. I think it's feasible to go yeah. non-union. It just means that you have to hire people who are non-union. Or the people that you're hiring are okay to do a non-union contract. Sure. Yeah. Okay, so why don't we yeah. launch into labs now? Yeah. Well, while you're shooting, right, um, we all speak about the word shooting. Shooting is used to be with a big screen, a big reel of plastic that was turning inside a camera. Uh, that still occurs. There is a, a lot of film that is still being uh, shot on actual film itself. Uh, these days, um, you also have a lot of films that are being done digitally. Uh, so you don't need that, you know that um, actual negative that is being shot while you're doing it. Why, why is it that there is still this dichotomy and both are still in play? Like what I've read is certain directors want to shoot on 35 millimeter, right? Mm -hmm. Because for, for artistic purposes or quality or because it's more old school and it's the way it was done in, in, in the days of past. Do do you know why that is? I would say to you that, until maybe very recently, I don't see how a digital picture could have matched a film in its clarity. My understanding is that film itself, 35 millimeter film, right, is the size of that negative, each, each frame or whatever it is, right? Um, that contains millions and millions of details of colors and so forth. So you could, to match that in a digital way, was almost like a task, a huge task. And I think only today we're getting, you know, somewhere close to that matching of the colors and so forth that can be. uh, So it was a question of that component. And I guess, obviously, um, people's expression of saying, hey, I, I am used to working in a medium and the director is the one that will choose that medium and therefore they feel comfortable in that medium. And that's why I think when, was it the late 70s or early 80s that videotape became a thing? Uh, well, it would be the 80s. And would the home video, t- better cam? Uh, well, like videotape, 
what yeah. I what I remember reading at one point yeah. was there was a lot of pushback by directors to shoot on videotape. They said mm -hmm. I'm only using yeah. film, yeah. right? So I guess that was the digital of the day. Yeah. Was yeah. the new improvement. And there no way there was any you could never compare. Maybe you could compare to, I don't know, 16 millimeter or whatever you want to call it, but nowhere that you were getting anywhere close to 35 millimeter. Right. Anyway, sorry, I totally cut you off. Well, we're, we're in laboratories and laboratories was the, 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 the need for a laboratory was that that film was the only copy of what you had shot, right? And it existed in one little reel of plastic. So you'd need to protect that reel. So the day that you finish shooting, that daily rush, whatever, or that would be shipped to a laboratory. And that laboratory would, could potentially make a copy of it right away if you want, okay? So that you could work off copies. So you'd have this master negative, right? And that master negative contained the only, you know, true, you know, ver version of the actual filming that you did. So the laboratory becomes a very important component for anybody who's involved in the film. It's where it's physically where all of the visual and and all the other rights that are associated to that film reside on it. And from an investor standpoint, from even the old tax shelters, okay? In the old tax shelter system, if you bought a film, you owned one one hundredth of that master negative. That was part of what you owned. So it was something that where you'd bring the intangible rights together into the tangible component. And where does it reside? In the laboratory. The laboratory... If you're an investor, you'd want that laboratory to hold that film and not get rid of it or dispose of it or move it without the consent of anybody who's involved and has a financial stake in that film. And we do agreements for yeah. that all the time. They're called lab pledge holder yeah. agreements, right? They say, you lab are holding this negative as mm -hmm. a pledge holder on my behalf mm -hmm. as the bank. Mm -hmm. You can do X, Y, Z with it. That's it. Once I'm repaid... Mm -hmm. You are no longer the pledge holder on my behalf. You might be the pledge holder for someone else who also has a stake in the film. But uh, once I'm repaid, we're good. Yeah. In um, fact, in one situation, we had a conflict. The director was let go. And he felt he wasn't justly let go. Okay? So he comes to our law firm and says, here's what's happened. Okay. Uh, They've let me go. Okay. We, uh, I, I, I feel that it, it's not proper and what can I do right and I said to them I said well technically you as a director are a copyright owner and the author is one of the copyright owners and you the director are another copyright owner so what we did is we seized the film okay we garnished the film we actually were able to go on set while they were filming because they had uh, they were still shooting the film and we went into the laboratory and basically served them with a seizure. And the moment that we seized their, that film itself, we immediately settled. Like I, literally I, within I've a, never it, heard of anything like that. So yeah. the, sheriff sh the sheriff showed up. The bailiff sheriff, the, yeah, yeah, shows up on set and says, you see that camera over there that contains reels from, the, from this director? We're seizing that. We grab it from the camera and walk away with the camera. That's... Uh... <laughs> That's what that, that was. Uh, yeah, those are major, and the, and that is flowing from the fact 
that the copyright ownership, okay, extends, it's, even though copyright is an intellectual right, an intellectual property right, we hear it all the time, IP rights and so forth, those IP rights are translated into physical embodiments of the work. So any copy, any, you know, version of it, okay, is actually owned by the copyright owner. And if, and if they are illegally owning it or possessing it, the copyright owner has the right to grab it and basically seize it and, and, and you know, uh, take possession and control of it. This is what happens in piracy. When you hear that uh, pirated copies of a film are, are seized or, or garnished, it's because the copyright owner has the ability to essentially grab and possess and freeze all the copies, legal, you know, the, the, the illegal copies of it. Nowadays, though, laboratories are, have changed their role. Now they're managing digital work. And many producers are not using laboratories. We've seen recently uh, situations, especially with television production, where the lab no longer is holding anything. And what's happening is they're storing that negative, let's call it, right, or the original master, digital master in this case, okay, somewhere in a server. And a server is essentially a computer, right? And that computer these days doesn't necessarily have to be physically present where you are. It could be residing in the cloud, we call it, right? The cloud servers and these cloud services that are offered, right? So now all of a sudden, if we're looking at, hey, if that's the embodiment of where of that work, and it's now sitting somewhere else in the United States, let's say, in Ireland somewhere, or maybe some other country, and so forth, how does that affect us? Because all of a sudden, remember I told you I was able to seize a laboratory, right, who has the actual physical negative. Now it could be somewhere in a completely different jurisdiction. We've had this issue. Okay. We've had where, Asia before. Yeah, well, we've not had, in film. Yeah, yeah, that's it. We've had other ones where we basically uh, are, are saying to ourselves, you know what? Maybe, you know, uh, whatever Google or, or uh, you know, uh, um, Amazon is really the one that is owning or has possession of the actual copy, the master copy of this thing, uh, of, this, of this film. So the laboratory in this case could be a, a Google or could be a cloud server pledge holder type agreement now that we're, we, we, we've looked at. And it's the only way, again, to marshal that asset in the event that there's a conflict. And you have to be able to touch that asset itself. So those, that, that laboratory now could be anywhere in the world before it used to be in the same city or location Sometimes they would fly it out to, you know, different places. But, the, you know, the laboratory component is now where you have essentially the physical copy of what you've done during the filming process and during your editing process and post-production and so forth. Right. Yeah. So this is where your film is. Yeah. And now we're produced. Yeah. You've, right? you've finished your principle, you've had your rap party, <laughs> and maybe it's time for a little bit of wine <laughs> exactly. that we've had before. Exactly. Uh, that, but they call it the rap party, right, at the end of the, the principle photography? Yeah, in yeah. theater, they call it striking. The, there, there's the rap party, and yeah. then you strike the set. Yeah. I guess you strike. Yeah, it's the rap party. Yeah. 
So, but now what are we in? We're in post-production, right? Which is what comes after principle. Mm -hmm. Well, the, 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 a whole different set of risks have changed. The moment that all principal photography is done, okay, that means that all the images, at least the ones that needed to be captured and filmed, exist. Okay, so from what you look at from the, the stakeholders' invest, uh, uh, interest, once that's done, all that's left to do is edit it, right? And then potentially add other images that are created from either the existing images or, or from other images that are created through computers and so forth. So the, the, the post-production stage is you've got this enormous amount of film, right? And I don't know if you've been on sets, right? Yeah, of course. The, how long they take, I think, what is it? One day to shoot one, I don't know how many minutes or whatever it is of a film, right? Yeah, I was an, an extra in a film yeah. when I was maybe eight years old. And it was a day to yeah. shoot 30 seconds, maybe a minute, right? A couple of minutes of whatever, yeah. of the actual film, yeah. right? And of course, like you see that, you see that now too yeah. when you show up on set, nothing yeah. has changed. So, which means that if you have a, a hundred minute film, you have literally maybe 50, hour, 50 times 10 hours 500 hours of film. Well, that's it. And when I, what's fun to see is nowhere is this more true than in reality TV or unscripted where, okay, you've had, you have some notion of the story arc or the story you want to tell going in. Um, but the real writing happens in post-production. Mm -hmm. The editors are really the writers in that medium, but even in feature film too, like we talk to our producer clients very frequently and their stories don't change dramatically mm -hmm. in the sense that they're telling a different story, but they tell it in a slightly different way, moving things around, adding music in. Music is a big factor mm -hmm. in adding to the flavor mm -hmm. or the character of a film. So there is still a tremendous amount, I think, of, of, of quality that is added in this post-production stage. And also a tremendous amount of work, right? Mm -hmm. Like you have to have people sifting through hours and hours and hours of footage. And that takes time. Well, we're taking 500 hours, who knows, right? And making it into a, a hundred minutes, right? Exactly. And, not, and then from that, okay, like you just said, A, we're adding in music. B, we're editing, we're changing, right? So that, this to me means that the actual original script or original story and whatever was visually captured okay requires to be modified remember we just spoke about contracts right in a contract the owner the author themselves has what they call moral rights a moral right in copyright means you can't change the work that you do without the consent if you affect the uh, the honor or whatever the integrity of the work itself so in many cases, okay, moral rights are waived because all of these changes that occur and all of these juxtapositions and adding in CGIs and so forth will technically change the work. So there's an interesting dichotomy between the, I guess, the old world, Europe or whatever, and, you know, the U.S. and, um, you know. Well, what I was just going to cut in and say was waived to the maximum extent possible. Yeah throughout the world yeah. right yeah i mean france 
um, Germany, uh, most of these European countries will not allow an author and, uh, to, or anybody who's creative, okay, to waive their moral rights or even, you know, to waive it in favor of someone else or to renounce to it and so forth. And in the United States, in fact, in the Copyright Act, there isn't a moral rights. There is, I believe, under VARA, which is the visual art. We're going to have to pull that up, yeah. VARA. But it, it addresses visual arts, mm -hmm. right? Visual artistic works. Um, in Canada, we're allowed to waive under the Copyright Act. The UK Act has the explicitly. same thing. You're allowed to waive in favor of a person or an entity. It can't be just renounced. The, the waiver is a, is a waiver that is in favor of someone who you have contracted with and just not giving up, a general giving up. And, and this has consequences. Like there's case law on it. There's that asphalt jungle case, right? Mm -hmm. in, okay. in France, there was... Oh, okay. You're talking about the... Um, uh, Houston, was it Houstonoff? Peter Houstonoff, right? It was. John Houston? John Houston. John okay, Houston, yeah. 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 yeah, I think they wanted to either change the film from black and white mm -hmm. to color or color to black and white. And you could wave in the U.S., but you couldn't wave in France. Mm -hmm. So there was a lawsuit in France. What did you call it? Asphalt Jungle? Asphalt Jungle. And then I think it ended up getting shown or not shown, right? I, I don't recall. But I think it was a successful suit on, yeah, on, on the director's front. Are we are we pulling it up? Yeah, we're gonna try to bring it up here if I can, just to get a look at the. Uh, uh, here it is. Hold on. Once we're waiting, I'm gonna have some wine. Yes, I think I'm that would gonna, be a good thing. I'm just gonna help myself. Oh, so this is a really old case, 1950s. John Houston, Asphalt Jungle. There's even, I think, a Wikipedia on it that shows probably what ended up happening. Colorization. Was color? Yeah. yeah. So it was film noir, and it seems that it was shot in black and white and then colorized. Yeah. A film colorization lawsuit. So that's an interesting part because they wanted to change. You can get a new copyright once you color it, right? And therefore, what you're doing is you're changing the actual nature of it. Imagine if you saw, uh, what is this? The, 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 uh, the amateur, um, um, the, this movie that was recently shot only in black and white. And, it, and it just shooting in black and white means that the... The, the whole scene, the whole creative component is very different than you start adding, you know, color to it. Yeah, yeah of course. Okay. So, so those are moral rights, mm -hmm. right? Typically, as producers counsel, we get them waived to the maximum extent possible throughout the universe. Mm -hmm. When we're representing a lender, we tend to even look at key contracts and make sure that there's a waiver of moral rights in mm -hmm. them. What else? So the, the next aspect uh, that we talked about is this whole effects. So we've all the, all the shooting is done, but m many times what you see on a film isn't exactly 
what was filmed, it's been modified. And that modification occurs by computers and shooting in front of what they call a green screen. So the green screen, apparently, for some reason, that color of green is able to be easily replaced by any other uh, scene that you have. So you can take somebody, literally, who's sitting in a studio and make them you know, feel as if they're in Hawaii or on a planet somewhere else. Um, and that's a different right. And that right, actually, in terms of finance component, is now recognized in such a way that um, provinces and different jurisdictions are recognizing that that triggers a different um, tax credit. You actually have a bonus now, if you're in, in Quebec, when you do green screen and you do special effects. And the green screen shooting counts as part of special effects. So those components, when you're actually looking at different jurisdictions, is something to consider. So if somebody says, hey, I'm going to go to Louisiana, but Louisiana doesn't have a special effects credit, that's a bonus, you may be getting a, a, a certain percent of your money, of your spend there, but you're not getting potentially a lot of it if your film is highly laden with special effects and green screen and so forth. Um, there's also the VFX component, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And this is for all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. One is a film like Gravity, where it's just so VFX heavy, mm -hmm. right? Every shot mm -hmm. has a tremendous VFX component. Then there's other things, like let's say you're shooting Montreal for Paris. You shoot an old Montreal, mm -hmm. but you're not just relying on the natural setting, right? The buildings and the mm -hmm. architecture. You VFX the Eiffel Tower into the background, yeah, that's right? It. Yeah. If you've ever seen any of these demo reels from these uh, effects companies, they'll show you what was originally shot and they'll take out the background and then vroom, put in the entire uh, setting and so forth of the actual place of where the film was, was being done. Exactly. And there's really great examples of that. There's a movie 5050, uh, which was shot in Vancouver, mm -hmm. but set in Seattle. Mm -hmm. So you have the... Uh, the very tall building, I think it's called The Needle in mm -hmm. Seattle. So they plunk that in the background, but it's very clearly the mm -hmm. beginnings of mm -hmm. Gastown. Uh, here, there's we, we've been shot for Paris so many times, mm -hmm. right? And they, they basically maximize or enhance the French quality mm -hmm. of our architecture. Another element is also when you change the film from 2D, we call it, to 3D. Um, that aspect, which is, you know, it's come back... A few times uh, in in um, in cinema, where this whole component of visual viewing, okay, uh, in a three D aspect, becomes popular. So the whole issue is that now three D itself is taking on another context. You have three D televisions. Um, we may be in a situation where we may be able to see three D without having to wear special glasses. Uh, but not, we're still in a in a, an, an area where the the visual component of creating that film requires different technological elements to get created. One of the questions that we looked at was: when I do a three D film, am I creating another copyright? So if I take a regular two D film and change it into a three D film. Is there a second copyright that's been created? Our view is yes. 
And that's because in 3D, I'm not certain if everybody sort of knows what you end up doing is you have components that are in front of you and behind you. And when you move that, okay, you end up seeing what's behind the, the, the object, which, is, uh, which you are now bringing forward. So you're actually creating component, creating and adding visual elements to that screen. If you do it with special cameras, you have a special camera that cre can take the background. You can do it without it and then fill in that background. So all of that is a technological process which creates another film. The same thing with a VR. Visual, virtual reality now, if you're looking at filming, when you used to film only whatever it was that the camera saw, maybe the cameras are now filming 360 degrees around you, and the only way to see it is visually through some form of glasses themselves. So now you have films that could be completely immersive and expansive and completely you know, visually seen in a completely different light. So imagine being in Jurassic Park and literally being able to, you know, be in the park itself and turn around and, and, and see what's around you and, and see the film together. Yeah. With the actors. Yeah. yeah. So are we ready to move on to delivery? Well, now that we've all cut up the film and, and we've, uh, we, uh, we've put in all of these special effects, we've probably replaced even some of the sound because the sound is, is ADR'd in often the, 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 by the actors that later on. ADR yeah. stands for, it's not alternative dispute resolution, yeah, right? Exactly. It's yeah. automated dialogue replacement. Or is it al alternate dialogue replacement? Is it alternate? Alternate or... It's not automated. Audio it's alternate. dialogue replacement or whatever. It, it's yeah. alternate dialogue replacement? Yeah, that's it. And that's basically where you have an actor in, in the editing room with you, and he talks into a microphone like this one yeah. and says his line over again to the movement of his mouth at the yeah. exact same pace, mm -hmm. right? Either because he garbled mm -hmm. a word or she garbled a word or for whatever other reason. Yeah. That's why when we take a movie, it sounds the sound pretty bad. But then when they take the movie, they replace that sound with the, uh, the ADR track. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Thanks so much for listening, everyone, and right. stay tuned. All right.